0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, You as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. There are enormous blind spots. Intelligence is not a perfect science. It was quite clear election after election that if the country doesn't trust you to keep it safe... They won't look to any other issues. The first prerequisite is you've got to be trusted to keep the country safe. There is no perfect cyber patch for this. The Russians are a capable enough adversary. In 2020, if they want to get into the DNC and again, they will get in.
1: This is Intelligence Matters with Michael Morrell, a joint production of thecypherbrief.com and CBS News. I'm Cypher Brief CEO and publisher Suzanne Kelly. In this podcast, the former acting director of the CIA speaks with top leaders asking the right questions and making connections that provide deeper insight into complex security events, because intelligence matters. Adam Schiff is a Democratic congressman from California. He is in his ninth term in the House of Representatives, and he is the ranking member the senior Democrat on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. I got to know Adam when I was Deputy and Acting Director of CIA. Adam is a man of integrity, he is someone who cares deeply about the future of the country, and he has become one of the most influential voices in the entire Congress on national security and foreign policy issues. He is someone who's even talked about as a future presidential candidate. I had the opportunity recently to sit down with Adam to talk about his career, the intelligence community, and the key issues facing our nation. This is Intelligence Matters. And I'm Michael Morrell. Congressman, thank you for joining us. It's great to have you on the show.
0: It's great to be with you. And thank you for your long years of service to the country. Well, it's
1: great to, it's great to see you again. I don't miss the hearings, um, but I miss spending time with members talking about national security issues.
0: Well, you did a spectacular job. We're all in your debt. Well, thank you very much.
1: I'd love to begin by talking about your career a bit because a, a good chunk of our listeners are young people who are thinking about their futures and thinking about where they want to go. And one of the things I'm trying to do with the podcast is to get people excited about public service and and national security. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about your career. And so you were born in Massachusetts and you moved to California, I think, when you were in high school. Do you think that that move to California helped frame who you are and what your worldview is and how you think about issues? Or was that already set by the time you, you made that move?
0: I actually moved a bit earlier uh, because we had an intermediate uh, step in Arizona. Okay. We moved to Arizona when I was in late grade school and lived there a couple of years before moving to California. And I'm sure you know, the the move out west uh, had a profound impact on me in ways that I probably didn't know at the time and and maybe only even now dimly understand. I like to joke with one of my colleagues Steve Cohen uh, who's from Memphis um, about the fact that when my father was transferred, he was uh, in what he used to call the rag business and the clothing business. When he was transferred away from Boston, he was given the option of being promoted to a position in Memphis, Tennessee, or one in Arizona and ultimately California. Uh, and he chose the position that would take him out west. And uh, I always tease Steve that had he chose, chosen Memphis, maybe I would be Steve Cohen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, so was uh, that
1: a conscious decision to go west?
0: Well, it was uh, on the family's part, and I'm not sure why my father and mother made that decision. I was just a kid and not not really a consultant, but I was the beneficiary of one thing. I think my folks felt sufficiently guilty about uprooting us that uh, promptly when we arrived in Arizona, uh, they bought my brother and I motorcycles. Uh, We used to pack a lunch, bring a compass, and go out in the desert and ride for hours, and it was a Fantastic experience. Uh, You could find arrowheads and there were kind of natural small dunes that you could get airborne going over. So uh, as a young kid, it was quite exciting.
1: Very nice. So college at Stanford, political science major, followed by law school at Harvard. You must have done it very, very well in high school. Why political science? Why law school? You know, were you interested in politics then already? What was going through your mind at that point?
0: I was interested in public policy uh, as an undergraduate. I wasn't involved in any political activity on campus. Uh, I was actually pre-med and a poli-sci major. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I was interested and thought medicine would be a very interesting, challenging, uh, and satisfying career. But I also had a, a broader interest uh, in the world and what was happening around the world and the challenges facing the country, and I decided that I would take a broad array of classes in the sciences and the non sciences and history and and then, over time, figure it out what I wanted to do with my life. Ultimately, it took a lot longer to figure out than I thought. I ended up applying to both types of graduate schools and ultimately decided that uh while i I was interested in medicine, I didn't have the same passion for it that I did for public policy and ultimately chose the legal uh, route.
1: So you mentioned I, this this interest in the world at a, a fairly young age, right? High school, or college. Where did that come from?
0: I'm not sure where it came from. I do remember having a map of the world that I used to lay out on the floor when I was a kid, and I would plug a little lamp in and crawl, <laughs> I don't mean crawl as, as if I was an infant, But, you know, as a child, crawl on top of the map, I was small enough to crawl over the map with this lamp and look at all these places around the globe and wonder what they were like. I had a particular fascination, as many kids do, with Madagascar. Uh, And I was delighted after it became the Malagasy Republic that it went back to being Madagascar again.
1: So my sister and I would lay out a map, world map, and we would spend a quarter— and wherever the quarter landed, we would then go study, research, you know, look in the, the World Book Encyclopedia, right, and try to learn everything we could about that country.
0: Well, we had a Compton's Encyclopedia <laughs> that we used for the same purpose.
1: So out of law school, you take a job as a prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Los Angeles. How did that experience affect who you are and your worldview?
0: It affected it in many ways. Um, when I was in law school, I took a fabulous litigation workshop that was taught by a couple assistant U.S. Attorneys from Los Angeles, and that's what really got me first thinking about the U.S. Attorney's Office as a career and a kind of law that I wanted to practice. The wonderful thing about the U.S. Attorney's Office is you have a lot of time to do the investigations right, to really put a lot of uh, effort, thought, and care into your charging decisions, and they're big and they're fascinating and they're difficult cases. It uh, it taught me a, a lot about analysis. I think both law school and, and being an assistant U.S. attorney, how to think about problems, uh, skills that I use a lot in this job. Uh, and I know later on we're going to talk about some of the issues where you have an intersection between privacy and security. Uh, a lot of those skills that I learned as a prosecutor and, and in law school uh, come in really handy when you're trying to figure out, okay, what is the real issue here? and how do we solve it? And how do we solve it in a way that doesn't have a lot of unintended consequences? I also learned uh, an important lesson that has served me well as a legislator, and that is uh, I spent a year clerking for a judge before I went to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and he would always say the street out in front of the courthouse is a two-way street, meaning you're going to go down it one day in one direction. You may need to come down it in the other direction. Don't Uh, burn your bridges uh, with opposing counsel. They may be your co-counsel in the next case and and be professional in the courtroom, make the dispute professional and leave the dispute in the courtroom uh, behind. Well, that has profound
1: meaning today in this town, doesn't it?
0: It certainly does. It certainly does. Now, it's ironic that the street out in front of the courthouse, in fact, was a one-way street, <laughs> but the <laughs> but the principle was a good one. And, you know, when I got to Congress, I remember fighting over an issue of profound significance to my constituents, their meaning genocide, and having the ranking member and the chairman oppose me the first time I brought it up. But I didn't burn those bridges, even though I felt very passionately about the issue. And a couple of years later, when I brought the bill up again and I'd had that much more time to work it and work them— uh, the ranking member moved passage, and the chairman voted for the bill. You know those analytical skills, but as well the idea that you don't personalize differences on policy, or or make a, you know in the case of a lawyer uh, an argument in the courtroom mean an argument outside the courtroom.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. So while you were a U.S. attorney, you prosecuted an espionage case, Richard Miller former FBI agent at that point. I think it was the first FBI agent ever to be convicted of espionage. What was that experience like?
0: Well, it certainly feels these days like my life is doing nothing but going around in circles. That was an FBI agent who was seduced by an attractive Soviet KGB asset named Svetlana. They are always called Svetlana for some reason. Uh, It was an old, you know, sex for secrets kind of a case. And it was really an earthquake of an issue for the FBI. They'd never had one of their agents indicted before for betraying the country. And one of the things that uh, has stayed with me was I must have worked with dozens and dozens of agents to prosecute him. They were consummately professional. They were among the very best agents I'd ever worked with. And it's led me to have a lifelong appreciation for the FBI. They have tremendous professionalism within the Bureau But I also learned something later uh, when I got to Congress and Robert Hansen was indicted, another Mm -hmm. FBI agent. Right after you got to Congress. Right after I got to Congress. and I met with Director Free to talk about it, Mm -hmm. uh, then FBI Director Free. And what was striking to me is when I looked back at when Hansen began his spying career, it was at the very time we were prosecuting Richard Miller. Miller was originally sentenced to two life terms plus 50 years. And what this Hansen case taught me was no deterrent is enough on its own. You need to have checks within the system because it was such a shock to the Bureau that Miller was indicted. It was such a powerful uh, sentence when he was originally sentenced. Now the sentence was later changed. And to think that in a different FBI office somewhere in the country, was aware of what Miller had done and was going through and was sentenced to, was beginning his spying career, told me deterrence alone is not enough.
1: Uh, Hansen had a huge ego and thought that he was smarter than everybody else and thought that he would never get caught, so that deterrence didn't apply to him. Yep, yeah. yep. You know, one of the things you're known for on Capitol Hill is your interest in national security, among other things. Um, did it start then or did that evolve later?
0: Well, as a prosecutor, I I was obviously focused on public safety, and when I got to the legislature uh, after my time in the U.S. Attorney's Office and a stint in private practice, I chaired the Judiciary Committee, focused a lot on public safety issues. Uh, Foreign policy and national security was beyond the realm and jurisdiction of a state legislator, but... When I got to Congress, it was very much in line with what I had been doing. It was, uh, I thought, a natural expansion. But I also gravitated to it for another reason, and that is I saw a real lack of focus expertise uh, on the issue within my party. Many members not comfortable with the national security issues or defense issues, uh, not comfortable with the vocabulary of them. It's not something that is always rewarded by the base of the party. But it was why we were losing a lot of elections, particularly at the highest uh, levels uh, in terms of the presidency. But it was quite clear, election after election, that if the country doesn't trust you to keep it safe, they won't look to any other issues. They they won't be interested in what your position is on the economy or healthcare or anything else. The first prerequisite is you've got to be trusted to keep the country safe. Uh, so I I figured this was an area that maybe I could add value. The house is a very big place, four hundred thirty five people. You have to decide where is the area in a body that big where you can add value or you'll be here for however long you're here and you'll find you don't add any value. So I formed a democratic study group on national security. I brought in different speakers. I tried to educate myself uh, and my colleagues and and make it uh, a niche work could add value. I, I do remember one of the first, or a couple of the first meetings I, I set up when I got here, so I must have come with a, an interest already, was uh, I thought, I was elected at the time that George Bush was. One of the first things he was doing was dismantling the Non-Lugar non-proliferation program. Uh, that was a program, as you know, where we were working cooperatively with the Soviet Union to blend down and destroy stockpiles of nuclear material. It was a very cost-effective way, frankly, for the United States to protect it's itself. a very effective program. And it made much sense to me why it would be this bipartisan effort would be. Cut. And I thought, you know, I should call Sam Nunn and I should call Dick Luger. And I did. And the wonderful thing about being uh, in the House uh, is they will actually sit down with you. And so I brainstormed with them about what were the objections, what were the concerns, how can we overcome them. So early on, I I was both interested and and felt this was an area where I might add value.
1: You really invested in it. You served in the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Um, you served on the State and Foreign Operations Subcommittee of the Appropriations Committee. You're on the House Intelligence Committee now, so it's something you've really invested in.
0: It is. It is. And, and I uh, came to be on the Intelligence Community, Committee quite fortuitously. I remember uh, one evening I was walking through the Capitol, and Leader Pelosi stopped me and uh, said, can I talk with you? And I said, of course. And she said, have you ever thought about being on the Intelligence Committee? And I said uh, that actually I hadn't and she said well you know we're about to begin an investigation into why the tapes the videotapes of the enhanced interrogation techniques uh, were destroyed and i would like to have somebody on the committee with investigative experience would you be interested and i said of course and it was a rare instance where a member was solicited to join the committee was it 2008 um roughly you know it was roughly 2008? around that time it may have been a little bit earlier than that mm-hmm. because I initially joined, actually, a different iteration. It was called the SIOP, the Select Intelligence Oversight Panel. It was an, that panel, which was short-lived, was an effort to address one of the recommendations of the 9-11 committee, and that is that we merge the oversight and the funding responsibilities right. and that we have a, a particular focus well, on I Intel that. funding. I remember that. Yeah. Because Intel funding is not done by the Intelligence Committee. It's actually done by the Defense Appropriations Committee. But it's such a significant enterprise, it was felt it should have its own oversight panel. And so I was initially asked to serve on that and then asked to serve on the full Intelligence Committee.
1: I'm going to go back just quickly before we move forward. You lost your first two races. And I think that's really important because when I was at the agency managing analysts, I had folks who you know, were 4.0 in high school and 4.0 in college and, you know, went to the best schools and came to the agency and wrote their first piece of analysis. And it comes back, you know, with red marks all over it. And it's the first time that they fail and it failed in their life and how they react to that really determines where they go from there. And you, you lost your first two races. What kind of experience was that? And, and what did you learn from it?
0: Uh, you know, I learned a tremendous amount from it. And, uh, you know, it's often said you lo- learn more from losing than winning. That's not a reason to lose, uh, but it's nonetheless uh, very true. I-, I knew almost nothing about running for office the first time I ran for office, and it showed. But I, I learned a lot during that first assembly race, and a couple years later came back and ran again. For the again. state assembly in California? Yes, and uh, ran again, lost again. The second time I ran was 1994. I was challenging a... Republican and Republican leaning district. And it was quite a bellwether year for the GOP to my (laughs) misfortune. But again, uh, you know, I thought this was something that I had a passion to do that I thought if I had the opportunity to serve, I I would do well. And I knew that not having experience, not having money, not having a political name, I was going to take some lumps along the way. And I had to be willing to do that. And if I wasn't willing to do it, I needed to pick a different profession. But it is a bit like a marathon. When you lose, you have to really dig in at the gut level. When you run at all, people will say, what are you thinking? And what makes you think that you've got what it takes? After you lose and you run a second time, those questions are multiplied exponentially. And, And obviously, you have to really want it. And you also have to have a a thick enough skin to be able to take the the questions that go along with it. You hope when you get through that, if you are successful, that you like it and it turns out to be the right fit for you. I'm very glad I stuck with it because I have found it enormously challenging and interesting and rewarding. And uh, it's everything I I hoped uh, in terms of uh, an opportunity to serve. You really do get to make a difference in people's lives. and, uh, And I'm glad I didn't give up
1: back to the Intelligence Committee, both in the Senate and the House, the fundamental jobs of those committees is to oversee the intelligence community, right? To ensure the American people that the intelligence community is operating within the law and the Constitution, to ensure the taxpayers' money is being spent in the right way, and to make sure that they're actually effective in collecting and analyzing the intelligence that the country needs to protect itself. So you've now been on the committee for, for quite some time. What have you learned about the intelligence community? What have you learned that it does really well, and what have you learned it needs to do a little bit better?
0: Well, it's been a completely fascinating experience, and there is no other committee uh, on the hill where the learning curve is steeper, because by definition, you really can't know much about how the intelligence agencies operate until you're on the committee. So for the first couple of years, you really struggle to understand. Many of your briefers um, speak to you as if you have been living and working in this area your whole life, as they have it is very like the military acronym laden and code name laden. And sometimes the code names change from year to year and keeping all that straight is like trying to do a enormously complex jigsaw puzzle in your head while you're listening. Uh, But, um, you know, I would say a, a couple things. First, I try to keep in mind two imperatives when I do my oversight. The first is we need to make sure that this stuff works and is protecting the country and that the agencies have the resources that they need. They're devoting them in the with the priorities that the country needs. And then second, we need to make sure that they're doing all of this in a lawful way that is respectful of people's privacy. and uh, And sometimes you can get so focused on one priority or the other that you forget <laughs> the other priority. And... I always... Uh, both
1: of them are in the preamble to the Constitution, right?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I always you know, ask the following questions of any intelligence program. Is it constitutional? If it's constitutional, is it effective? If it's both constitutional and effective, is it also structured in a way that maximizes people's privacy? And often a program will meet the first two criteria, but not the third, and you can still maintain the vitality of the program, uh, but change it in ways that are better protective of people's privacy. And as we have just a tremendous cadre of people working within the IC, it's often not a question of reforming the programs because of proven abuse. The abuse is very rare. Rather, it's often a question of reforming the programs to make make the prospect of any potential abuse in the future even less likely. But uh, in terms of what I've learned about what the communities do well or, or don't do well, I would say, first of all, they do this better than any other intelligence service in the world. So they're the best at it in the world, and I would say by a quantum leap over the next most capable country. But even given that, there are enormous blind spots. And intelligence is not a perfect science. And if you go into... uh, People are
1: trying to hide things from you, right? And so you only have a piece of the picture.
0: People are trying to hide things from you, but also the intelligence community doesn't have a crystal ball. You know, one of the best illustrations to me is the Arab Spring. Uh, I remember Leon Panetta testifying around the time of the Arab Spring, and he was asked, why didn't you see it coming? And... uh, It was a question that revealed both the the sort of strengths and the limits of intelligence, uh, in my view. And what he said is, look, we could see pressure building up along the fault lines. You could see it here, you could see it there, you could see it here.
1: In fact, we had been writing about those pressure points for a long time.
0: Oh, absolutely. But in terms of being able to tell when that pressure along the fault line would erupt into an earthquake, what the magnitude of the earthquake would be, where the epicenter would be, that's not something that we're capable of doing, um, not with precision. And, of course, he was speaking in metaphors that a Californian like he and I could fully appreciate. But, you know, some of the big intel questions, they are of that nature where you're not good, they're not going to be perfectly predictive of events. Uh, we often ask the briefers, you know, what do you think would happen if... And they give us their best estimation, and often it's very good. But, you know, it is, we are asking them to foresee the future. And and even with the best intelligence, it's difficult to do Very that. hard.
1: It's very hard. I want to get into the issues, Congressman, but just one more question about you here, which is all this experience you've now had with national security, foreign policy, what does that add up to in terms of Adam Schiff's worldview Adam Schiff's view of what role America should play in the world?
0: Well, what it adds up to me is, even though this idea has been given a bad name, uh, it is fundamentally true, and that is America is an indispensable nation. There is simply no other nation on earth that can do what we do, and that can be a force for good in the way that we can. Uh, We don't always live up to that potential, but no other nation has that both potential and reality. I think this is uh, most important when it comes to the promotion of democracy and human rights. If we don't do that, and I have profound concerns that this administration is not doing that, there is no other country that can step in our place. And this is hugely consequential, not only to us and our security, but to people all over the world. People that gathered in Tahrir Square who were secular opponents of the Mubarak regime, many of them are in jail or facing jail to this day, and they look to us. People in the Philippines who are the victims of a campaign of mass extrajudicial killing, they look to us. People in Turkey, journalists in Turkey, Turkey's now the leading jailer of journalists, they look to us. And they're not going to look to Russia. They're not going to look to China. um, They can't look to Europe with all the problems going on in Europe. And if they can't look to us or if they look to us and they don't recognize what they see, that is a tremendous loss to the world. And, and that's what my experience has taught me. We have a unique place in the world, and, and a lot of our power and our place comes from our ideals. And when we don't live up to those ideals and when we don't advance those ideals, when they're not at the top of our agenda, then we not only suffer, but the, the whole world suffers. So you know that I share that view,
1: but that's a view that's under pressure. It's under pressure from the far right, it's under pressure from the far left, a large group of people who say, we shouldn't be the world's policemen, we shouldn't be responsible for what's going on in the world, we have our own problems, let's focus here at home. How do you sell that idea, right, the idea of America as an indispensable nation and what that means for what we should do in the world? How do you sell that to your constituents? How, do you, how would you sell that to the American people?
0: Well, being the world's champion of democracy and human rights doesn't necessarily mean that we police the world in the sense of putting American boots on the ground everywhere, or that the military tool is the only tool we use to advance our ideals. Uh, far from it. But we do need to realize now that we are at a point of inflection in the world. Through our lives, we have lived in a world that was ever increasing in its freedoms with more people living in democratic societies, more people with the free press, more people able to practice their faith. And I think we felt that, okay, this is immutable. It's just, uh, as, as Martin Luther King once said, the moral arc of the universe may be long, but it bends towards justice. But we're at a point now where we cannot say with confidence that this will be true next year, uh, and with even less confidence that it will be true for the next generation. There is a real rise of authoritarianism around the world. There is a clash of ideas between the autocratic uh, model and the democratic model.
1: It is amazing that that debate is back.
0: It is amazing. It is amazing. Uh, You know, I think we have learned a lot in the last few years, both about how that idea that this was somehow immutable was wrong, that it, it needs to be fought for by every generation. I don't mean necessarily militarily fought for, but it has to be uh, something that is, uh, is advanced by every generation and just how much uh, retrenchment can take place overnight. This is, I think, a profound risk to freedom-loving people around the world. It's a risk to us as well. And some of the dynamic we see around the world, we are also now seeing at home as some of our own checks and balances are being eroded. So Americans better care about this because it's our lives as well as the lives of people all over the world.
1: So the issues, Congressman, two big issues in front of the the House Intelligence Committee at the moment. The first is um, reauthorization of Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act. Can you give people a a sense of for what what that's about, why it's important, and what your position is on it?
0: Section 702 is, as you know, a program that allows us to look at the communications of foreigners on foreign soil. Uh, And it has been Enormously important in terms of being able to discover plots against the United States and, and thwart those plots. And, and even more often to help our allies prevent attacks on their citizens. So it's been enormously important. Uh, you know, this is one of two major programs that have been the subject of reform. The first was the Telephone Metadata Program. That program, frankly, added a lot less value in terms of national security than 702. I don't think there's any dispute about just how valuable 702 has been as a uh, intelligence tool and law enforcement tool. So there's broad recognition that we need to maintain the capability. The most significant issue that has come up in terms of potential reforms to it is when we gather these communications, and unlike the telephone metadata program, which was just numbers, this also includes the contents of communications. When we gather that on foreigners, there are times when we incidentally get information about Americans, either because the Americans are talking uh, about Americans or they're talking to Americans. And that can't be the subject of deliberate collection. We can't, You can't do a backdoor search. Oh, we really want to know what citizen A is talking about, so we know he talks to foreigner B. That's illegal. That, that can't be done. But nonetheless, going up on foreigner B, who let's say is a member of Al-Qaeda, they talk about American... A, uh, who may be a collaborator here, uh, that gets collected. And one of the most profound reform questions is, under what circumstances should law enforcement be able to query the database that's collected using U.S. person identifiers? So we have this information. It's lawfully in the possession of the U.S. government. And law enforcement might query it and and say, okay, okay. I've got a bank robbery case involving, you know, Mr. Jones. Let's see if Mr. Jones appears in the database. Maybe there's evidence of the bank robbery, maybe there's evidence of other crimes from Mr. Jones. Should we do that? Is that lawful? Is that desirable? Now, I happen to think the answer in terms of whether it's lawful is probably yes. That information is legally in the possession of the U.S. government. It is to use an analogous doctrine in plain sight. So, you know, for example, if I have a search warrant to go into a house to look for a stolen car, and I'm in the house. I have a right to be where I am, and I see cocaine on the table. I'm allowed to seize the cocaine this The contents of these communications have come lawfully in the possession of the u s government They're not i think it's not illegal for the u s government to look at them to see if there's evidence of a crime, but nonetheless, we often go beyond what's lawfully required or lawfully prohibited. Is this the kind of practice we want to see continue? There is a risk, I think that if that database gets too big and it's used too liberally. Uh, you just have law enforcement using it to uh, as a fishing expedition. Let's see what we can find on, on Mr. Jones, uh, if he appears in the database. At the same time, we want to make sure that law enforcement, the intelligence community, can query the database when they have a good national security reason to do so. And we don't want to impose a blanket, in my view, a blanket warrant requirement, where there may not be probable cause to believe that a U.S. person identifier has committed a crime where there are good reasons to want to use that in a search. So to give you a concrete example, let's say that we're aware of a plot uh, against the Boston Marathon, and you want to query that database to find out, are foreigners talking about the Boston Marathon? Well, that's a U.S. person identifier or a U.S. identifier. If you require a warrant, you may not be able to meet the probable because standard. In this case, it's a victim, not a perpetrator. Uh, so it's an unusual paradigm to use, uh, the warrant requirement. My thought is, how do we preserve the vitality of the national security tool, but at the same time prevent the database from becoming just an all-purpose phishing uh, expedition? And I think you could impose a warrant requirement on non-national security matters uh, and basically say, hey, FBI, if you want to query the database on a na- non-national security crime, then you need to get a warrant. For other stuff, though, we don't want to tie your hands when it comes to protecting the country. And that's part of the debate we're having now.
1: And this has to be resolved soon.
0: It has to be resolved by the end of the year. We have a sunset date. And the sunsets are a really good practice because they force Congress to analyze these programs, figure out, are they still working? Are they still effective? Uh, have they evolved in ways we didn't intend? Do we need to put further uh, protections in place? Uh, there is talk, which I don't like, frankly, of kicking the can down the road and just extending the program as is for another couple of years, uh, which doesn't give the agencies that much certainty to plan. And it's not going to be any better or easier uh, two years from now than it is today. And we saw this deadline coming all year. Uh, so I think we, re- we should resolve it now.
1: So the other, the other huge issue before the committee is the Russia investigation. And I know you may be limited in what you can talk about here, but what I was hoping you could talk about a little bit is what is the scope of the inquiry? What are the key questions that the committee is trying to, to answer here?
0: Well, first of all, you know, I want to put the Russian investigation in what I think is the the most important context. And that's what we had been discussing earlier. And that is what the Russians did to us was unique to us in the sense of it was a more expansive intervention in our affairs by the Russians than we had ever seen. The Russians decided that they were going to shed any risk aversion they had and quite ham-handedly intervene in our presidential election. But they've been doing this elsewhere for quite some time. This was not only an attack on our democracy, it was an attack on the very idea of liberal democracy. And they have been attacking that ideal elsewhere. They, and this is so clear from the social media campaign, were not only trying to advance one candidate and hurt the other in our election, but more fundamentally, just tear us apart. So discord, pit some Americans against other Americans in the same way they are trying to pit people in Europe against each other and exacerbate uh, fears of migration, and the same way they wanted to further Brexit. It's all in in the Russian service of tearing at the very fabric of democracy. The only thing Putin fears is not losing a democratic election. If you're a viable opponent of the Kremlin, you end up in jail or dead. He does fear the ability of people to gather in massive numbers And protest and throughout even their autocratic rulers, which is why those color revolutions were so terrifying to him and why, frankly, he harbored such a grudge against Hillary Clinton for speaking in support of people's peaceful right of protest. But we need to understand more broadly what the Russian objectives were, or we're not going to have the right response and remedy to what they did. Uh, So I think, first and foremost, it's important to understand the context. In terms of the scope of what we're investigating, it's our job to give the public a complete report. This is what the Russians did. These were the vectors of their active measures campaign that they used. This was the involvement of U.S. persons, and this is what we need to do about it. Bob Mueller's responsibility is very different. It's his job to figure out, have U.S. laws been violated? If so, who should go to jail? He works for Rod Rosenstein, and the only public speaking that Rod Rosenstein may allow him to do judging from the the memo he wrote about James Comey, is in the form of an indictment. Uh, So that's a very important job, obviously, to figure out how justice needs to be served and what the role of U.S. persons was and what crimes may have been committed. But the full public accounting, if there is to be one, will come from Congress. And that's why it's so important that our uh, investigations be allowed to continue and that they not be curtailed on some kind of a political timetable
1: will you look at the questions of what do we need to do to defend ourselves going forward and how do we deter putin and possibly other countries from doing this in the future or is that a different is that a different issue
0: no we will we will absolutely be looking at that as well and i think it's already clear frankly much we need to do certainly we're going to need to harden our elections defenses because among other things, we saw the Russians probing elections infrastructure around the country. And first and foremost, we need to make sure that that infrastructure uh, is immune from cyber attack. But we also need to be aware that when it comes to the Russian hacking and dumping operation, the hacking of the DNC, the hacking of the DCCC, John Podesta, there is no perfect cyber patch for this. The Russians are a capable enough adversary in 2020, if they want to get into the DNC and again, they will get in. And if they want to get in the RNC, they'll get in there too. And if a cyber patch is not the answer, if a cyber defense is not a complete solution, then what is? And I think the answer is we need to forge a national consensus that no matter who it helps or who it hurts, if a foreign party intervenes in a U.S. election again, we will all roundly repudiate them. And none of us will take advantage of the situation. We didn't have that consensus last year. Mr. Trump was more than willing to profit from the WikiLeaks publication of the Russian stolen materials and uh, unwilling to condemn it. To this day, the president of the United States is unwilling to condemn it. And the single biggest barrier to getting to that national consensus is, um, unfortunately, the president of the United States, who continues to say this is all a hoax. But somehow we're going to have to get there or we are going to remain deeply vulnerable to if not Russian next time, some other foreign actor. And as
1: you know, Alexander Hamilton wrote about the dangers of foreign interference in our democracy a long, 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 long time ago. Yes, indeed. During one of the first hearings on the Russian investigation in the House Intelligence Committee, you had a very strong opening statement um, where you laid out what was, I think, a, a pretty strong circumstantial case that U.S. persons um, had aided the Russians in some way here. That's now several months ago. I mean, would you make that same case today? Is it, would it be stronger today? What can you say about
0: that? Oh, I think you would have a much more powerful case to make today. Uh, if I was giving that opening statement again, I would say I believe that we're going to find evidence that the Russians, through intermediaries, approached the very highest levels of the Trump campaign and offered them dirt on Hillary Clinton and that the campaign said that they would love to have that help. And, in fact, indicated to the Russians what the best timing for that would be, which would be in the late summer. I would also uh, say that I believe the investigation would find that members of the Trump campaign were in direct and private communication with WikiLeaks, the cutout the Russians would use to publish a lot of these materials. Now, all all of this, of course, is already in the public record. Mm -hmm. I think if I had said uh, in March that we would see in writing the campaign expressed its willingness to accept Russian help, people would have said, you're crazy. You're never going to find that. That's the purest of speculation. Well, that is now in black and white. And the only reason that that isn't even more breathtaking is that the information in the investigation has come out in small pieces. And it's very hard when that happens for the public to see the whole picture. Uh, But some of those small pieces now in their context are really breathtaking What we know now in the public record, and obviously I can't go beyond the public record, but we know that in late April uh, of last year, the Russians approached uh, George Papadopoulos, a foreign policy advisor to the campaign, and informed the campaign that they had stolen Hillary Clinton emails. Ironically, the Trump campaign may have been made aware that the Russians had Clinton and Democratic Party emails before Hillary Clinton's campaign was made aware of this. Uh, They may have been aware they were hacked, but not necessarily that the Russians were in possession of these emails. But the Trump campaign was. Uh, That was in April. Now, weeks later, these uh, three high campaign people, Manafort, the campaign manager, Donald Trump Jr., the president's son, and Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, meet with these Russian emissaries uh, with the promise of dirt. And as, as you know, uh, Mike, Russian tradecraft will use intermediaries to give them some… … Classic
1: Russian intelligence operation.
0: It's, a, it's classic. And they will test the waters. Are these people willing to play ball? Are they interested? What can we gain out of this? And let's dangle something and see if they bite. So what do they dangle? They dangle some information about the Ziff brothers. Now, the campaign has been put on notice that they have more than this, that the Russians, in fact, have Clinton emails. The message the Kremlin gets back from that meeting is twofold. Number one, we'll play ball. We'd love to have your help. And number two, we're deeply disappointed in the dirt you gave us. Don't you have something better than that? Now, of course, the Russians have a lot better than that. That message gets sent June 9th in that meeting. It's only days later that Julian Assange announces for the first time he has received the stolen emails. So the picture that is presented now is exponentially more powerful than the one I could present in March. And uh, we still have a lot more work do to do in the investigation. you think we'll
1: eventually find that somebody inside the campaign actually helped the Russians, actually assisted their interference in the election, as opposed to just accepting, right, the stupidity of accepting the Russians' help and what the Russians were doing and, and showing interest in it, actually helping the Russians? Do you think we're going to find that?
0: Uh, I guess I would say a couple of things. First is... What kind of conduct ought to be anathema to the country? What kind of conduct in terms of foreign intervention and U.S. participation ought to be reprehensible? Should have picked up
1: the phone and called the FBI the first time they walked in.
0: Well, absolutely. And then the next question is, what's criminal? What rises the level of a prosecutable offense? Now, I would think that the conduct that has already become public meets the reprehensible test. It ought to all shock the conscience uh, that a U.S. presidential campaign would invite foreign intervention and then gleefully use it, uh, which is exactly what happened. And that's pretty incontrovertible at this point. Whether it is prosecutable, whether the collusion is also a criminal conspiracy, is ultimately Bob Mueller's decision, uh, whether he can prove it beyond reasonable doubt. I suspect one of the facts that that we're certainly investigating, that Mueller is likely investigating, is was it communicated to the campaign that the way the Russians would help, the way the Russians would act on the offer they made to help the campaign and the acceptance of that offer by the campaign, was not by providing the documents directly to the campaign, which would be harder, frankly, for the campaign to use, because then they'd have to explain where they got them. And it would be more complicated for the Kremlin because it would betray their hand uh, was it communicated to the campaign that the way the Russians were going to help was by using a third party WikiLeaks or by using by publishing themselves through their cutout uh, Guccifer 2 and DC leaks that is obviously a very important piece in terms of a criminal conspiracy right. but even without that piece you still have the offer of help, the acceptance of help by the campaign, and the provision of help by the Russians. We all ought to condemn that. Right, right. So I wanted
1: to cover a whole bunch of national security issues, and we don't have time to do that. But I want to end by talking about something I think actually more important than Iran and North Korea and China. I want to talk about what's going on here at home. Both the economy and politics, because I happen to believe, and I'm sure you agree, that at the end of the day, the most important determinant of our national security is the health of our economy and our society. So I want to get your sense of sort of where we are economically as a nation. And I was struck by the recent McKinsey study that, that just came out that says that one third of all the current jobs in the US are going to disappear by 2030 as a result of automation. And more jobs will eventually be created. But that's going to take some time, it's going to be a big transition, it's going to be painful. And if the government doesn't do the right thing, it's going to tear at the very fabric of who we are as a society and and our politics. And I just wanted to get your sense of what you think the right thing is here. What do we have to do as a nation to deal with this problem of people being dislocated by by automation?
0: I think this is a very uh, enormously consequential issue. And you framed it the right way. This is about the health of our economy and the health of our society. If you look at a lot of what is driving these authoritarian developments around the world, it is economic dislocation. And that is also coupled with fear of the other, uh, which is so heavily implicated in the migration issue in Europe. But that's present here at home as well. And what I have seen uh, in terms of what the administration is offering on these two critical questions the profound impact and of the global economy and automation as well as uh, the divisions within our society that the Russians are seeking to exploit what i see is no economic program to deal with that a promise that you're going to win so much you'll be tired of winning and rather an exploitation of those societal divisions as a way of distracting from the lack of any economic agenda now that, I think, is the failing of the administration, but that doesn't obviate the need for my party to come up with good answers as well. And when I looked at what happened after the election, it was quite apparent to me that uh, one of the common denominators you see in both red and blue areas is that distressed communities where people were leaving along with the jobs and people's hopes largely went with Donald Trump, and those that were growing were people arriving in the hopes of jobs and opportunities, and those largely went with Hillary Clinton. So it's a political imperative for my party, but more importantly, it's a policy imperative for the country to deal with the enormous changes that are going on, part of which are are resulting from globalization, more of which, as you point out, are resulting from automation. And I think the reality is the economy is just not working for too many Americans, Uh, not working indeed probably for a majority of Americans. We've created significant wealth in the last 10, 20, 30 years. But it hasn't been wealth that has been created everywhere in the country. It's been regionally created wealth. Uh, Areas of the country that are doing well are doing better, and areas of the country that are doing poorly are now doing more poorly. And that's true of individuals as well. I think we need to look at each community and figure out how do we make sure we leave no community behind. Pittsburgh had an amazing transformation from a hollowed out city in the Rust Belt to a thriving economy. Now, they had certain things going for them, like Carnegie Mellon and other infrastructure, but they built a booming tech business and healthcare business uh, sector. And we need to look at what we did right in Pittsburgh and how we can replicate that elsewhere. In every part of the country, there are attributes that can be drawn upon. I don't think that we can go into parts of the country, and, to use the, the coal metaphor, and say that we're going to change the global market in energy. I think we need to level with people. You can't push Uh,
1: back against these fundamental dynamics underway. You just can't. You you know,
0: automation is like gravity. There's no resisting it. You can't stop people from innovating. What you can do is prepare them for the changing nature of the economy by making sure that they have the skills they need to succeed, make sure they can afford an education and not be, be placed under crushing debt. The economy isn't working for young people because they can't afford college. And the economy isn't working for middle-aged people because when they do lose their job, when they are dislocated by automation or these other forces, it's too hard to get one of an equivalent pay. And we, we need to use all the levers that we can in the public and private sector to make changes to the way our economy is functioning. We can do that through our, our tax structure. And unfortunately, the tax bill before us is going to make all these problems worse. It's going to simply accelerate the trend of the wealthy doing better and the middle class and the poor doing worse. And it gives no incentive really to create jobs. It creates an incentive for higher share prices and higher profit taking among corporations that are doing well, but it doesn't do anything to put people to work or raise their wages. Uh, So I think that the, the central preoccupation for us ought to be how do we make sure we leave no community behind? How do we make sure that kids can afford to go to college? How do we make sure that people in midlife can get the skills they need and have a chance to get back into the economy if they lose their job? And those that are getting older have some security in their retirement. So that, I think, is the overarching challenge that we have to meet. And I think it calls for a a robust economic agenda and not just a bunch of promises.
1: And then the other issue, which is related, is the political dysfunction. You know much better than than the rest of us, but there is certainly a perception that our elected officials can't come together and make compromise that advance us economically and as a society. That scoring political points is more important than coming to solutions to some of these really, really tough problems. Is that true? If so, how did we get there? And if so, how do we get out of this?
0: it is definitely true and and this is a foundational problem if we're going to bring about a new economic agenda so the economy works for people and we address these problems there are good solutions to doing that there are good ways to do this this you know our country was fortunate to um, go through an industrial revolution and benefit from that and modernize and and become a economic powerhouse Uh, We were fortunate to lead much of the technological revolution, and we can go into the future uh, with the confidence of being able to compete in this new environment if we're able to make certain changes in our economy, which we can do if we have a Congress that can work together, an administration that can work together to solve these problems. A big believer in something Bill Clinton once said, there's nothing wrong in America that can't be cured by what's right in America. And we have a tremendous amount going for us more than any other country on the face of the planet. But we are getting in our own way. We never seem to resolve anything. You know, we study healthcare, We work on it. It's a hard problem. We come up with a solution. And then in Groundhog Day fashion, we relitigate it over and over and over again. Rather than saying, okay, let's improve it as we go along. But let's move on to the next challenge. Somehow we need to get back to a functional government that puts its priority on solving problems for the country and in particular solving these economic challenges, because uh, we've never been further from that. It's never been more destructive kind of an environment. And, you know, I I have to say, uh, and this is discouraging, it's hard for me to see with this president that getting better. That's just not his governing style he's the last person to bring people together. He, he often ridicules that idea. But somehow we're going to have to do it. Because while we go through this very dysfunctional president, the rest of the world is not standing still. China is not standing still. And we can't either.
1: Congressman, you've been, you've been very generous with your time. I just have one more question, which which I think you've actually answered, but the question is going to be a little bit different. When you look at the lists that get published of people who might be the Democratic nominee in 2020, your name shows up on those lists from time to time, and I'm not going to ask you about that. That's not fair. Um, You're not going to answer it anyway. But, But I do want to ask you something with that in mind, and that is there's something that the great Harvard economist and philosopher John Kenneth Galbraith once said that has always resonated with me as I looked at other countries in the world. And what he said is, all of the great leaders have had one thing in common. It was the willingness to confront unequivocally the major anxiety of their people in their time. This and not much else is the essence of leadership. And I just wanted to get your reaction to that quote. And more importantly, what do you think the major anxiety of the American people is at this moment?
0: I think the quote is spot on. And I think the major anxiety people have at this moment is that Their lives, and more importantly, the lives of their children, are not going to be what they thought and hoped. And the quality of life for their kids and the next generation uh, is going to be less, not more. We've had an an intergenerational compact in this country, as long as it's been around, that we would make sure life was better for the next generation, and we were nagging on that. Uh, And I think that is deeply... Disturbing to the American people uh, that the the American dream in a in a way seems to be slipping.
1: By the way, that's exactly why those folks showed up into here square, because they wanted a better life for their kids than they they thought was possible.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, we we all want that, and and it's not beyond our grasp, uh, and it does require us to work together. Uh, it requires us to not exploit the differences between people, but bring the country together to meet these challenges. It requires the, the Congress to set aside some of the, the, the strident partisanship uh, and being, be willing to uh, roll up its sleeves and get things done for the American people. We can have another great century of progress and improving quality of life. There's nothing getting in our way except ourselves. But at the moment, we are profoundly in our way. We are tearing at the institutions of our own government. We don't need the Russians to tear us down anymore. We're doing a hell of a job ourselves. But but I think that's the profound anxiety people face. And if we don't deal with it constructively, people turn on each other, uh, which would be the worst thing uh, for the country. Uh, So let's put our focus on making this economy work for us, uh, making ourselves competitive, uh, around the globe and meeting these challenges head-on with the can-do spirit that we've been known for. I still feel the optimistic vision is the best one for the country, and we have every right to be confident going into the future uh, if we work together.
1: Congressman, thank you very much for spending time with us.
0: It's my pleasure. Thank you.
1: That was Adam Schiff. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next time on Intelligence Matters, and please leave a comment on iTunes. We care about what you think. We read everything. Thanks for being with us.
0: Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season.